0: Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you. We do not know just how much it cost to have your son suffer an eternity of the full consequences of your fairness and wrath for us. And Father, this Veterans Day, we're reminded of all those who have put their life on the line for us, and we have never considered the cost fully of service, of putting ourselves in arms way, So, Father, we ask for protection for every son, every daughter, every father, every friend. Father, we thank you for the picture we give of ultimate sacrifice for you on the cross, but ultimately the act of a good soldier fighting on behalf of others. And so, Father, we thank you for what you did for us at the cross, and we thank you for what you've done with each person, each family who've made sacrifices to have their family away from them, to defend us and protect freedom. And Father, we thank you for that, and we ask that your protection and blessing go upon each one. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. Well, Jesus wants to describe what the kingdom of God is like, because he knows that when we get when we get tapped into the kingdom of God. When we learn the heart of God, when we begin to reflect on how much it costs for him to die for us, it transforms you. So Jesus says, well, let me, let me think to myself, what, what could I liken the kingdom of God to? It's, it's like a man who found a very, very small, smallest of seeds, a mustard seed and he planted it in a garden and it grew and it grew and it grew and it grew and, it grew, and it expanded into a giant tree the tree was so large that birds got to rest in it that's what the kingdom of god is like a little seed takes over the whole garden the kingdom of god a little influence goes a long way what should i like in the kingdom of god to, he says it's like a woman who took just a little bit of leaven and she put it into three measures of fine flour and she kneaded it in and in and in until the entire lump was leavened. And just a little bit of leaven impacted the entire loaf. You see, a little leaven goes a long way and we as the church are called to be salt and light and to transform the lump and to transform the garden. Go and do likewise, Jesus might say. Which is actually a good application and a good word from the Bible, but I think it's the absolute opposite of Jesus' point from those two parables. The channel was taking notes. That was pretty good. And I'm not saying the application isn't true, but I don't think that's at all what those two passages are saying. I think Jesus is instead going to say that those two parables we just read and I just cited are actually saying that God's garden has been contaminated. How'd you get that? And God's dough has been contaminated. And that you and I need to be very aware that things can look very similar to the gospel, but they're not. And those contaminants can affect a church. Those contaminants can affect a life. Those contaminants can come in and destroy everything that God is trying to do in the kingdom. And as we examine this passage, you may not come to the same conclusion I come to today. And that's fine. That's part of digging into the Bible. Part of our DNA as a church is that we love digging into the Bible. So much so, we're going to spend 35 minutes digging into four verses today. You just read all four. And find out what God's kingdom is like and what contaminants can destroy it. Now to do that, it's helpful to have a plant guide. You ever, you ever walk through a botanical garden? And you walk through a botanical garden, there's all kinds of beautiful things to see. But then it's kind of nice to have that plant guide that says, hey, you're looking at a yellow, oh, that's from Africa, that's unique, don't touch that one, it's poisonous, right? It's helpful to see a plant guide when you walk through a botanical garden so you can recognize the plants. Well, these two parables are filled with plants. So I'd like to give you a plant guide of what some of the images might mean that Jesus uses, and then we'll reapply it to the parable. So the plant guide. Jesus says in Mark, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? That there's a sense in which Jesus' parables are connected. There are similar themes and similar images that are used. So we need to understand some of the images he uses so that we can apply it when he begins to describe different parables. So let me give you a plant guide. What does the Bible tell us or what does the culture of the day tell us about what that audience would have thought about mustard, leaven, the bird tree, remember the tree grows into a place of birds, And what does he mean by three measures of fine flour? Let's begin with mustard. If you lived in the Middle East, one thing, if somebody mentioned that some mustard was growing, mustard is a weed. It is not good news if wild mustard was growing in your yard, in your house, in your garden. So if you reference that, it would be like, oh no, weeds are growing. It's the same thing. A person in that time would recognize that wild mustard had the smallest of seeds, but it was an invasive weed. It took over everything. The best equivalent in America today would be me saying, especially if you live in the south, you'll get this, I've just planted some kudzu in your front yard. (laughs) Now, if you don't know what kudzu is, I didn't until I moved to Atlanta, kudzu is an invasive weed that grows and grows and grows until it kills everything. This is a picture, and this is very common when I live in Atlanta, to see what happens with kudzu. That's a house in the middle. Kudzu takes over forests, it tears down trees, it tears down houses, I've seen it take over cars. Kudzu is an invasive weed that because there's no winter in Atlanta, it takes over everything. So keep in mind that when the audience heard mustard referenced, this was not good news. Next plant God. How about leaven? What is leaven? Well, leaven is actually very clearly taught in the Old and New Testament as a sign for sin. After, the eight, after nine plagues, before the tenth plague, he tells the people, I want you to purge your house of leaven. Purge it. I want you to eat food only of unleavened bread to prepare for Passover. If you don't purge yourself uh, of the leaven, whoever eats leavened or yeast uh, bread during this feast of unleavened bread before Passover, that person shall be cut off if they eat it during those seven days. So it was so bad, leaven is an image of sin, that during the time you're reflecting on God's kingdom and God's work, if you ate of it, you'd be cut off from the community. Well, that might be helpful in our parable. This is picked up again in Corinthians to say, "Hey, pride, your glorying in yourself is not good. So pride is the subject. Do you not know that a little leaven references pride here leavens the whole lump. A little sin can destroy everything. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And by the way, if you understand the message of Jesus, since you truly are already unleavened by Jesus, who forgave you of everything you've done, past, present, future, all the leaven is gone. You've been unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us so that the leaven of malice and wickedness would be purged. And actually, the message of the Bible is that you and I are new lumps. Is that good news? Yes! Because when we were born, leaven came in and leavened the whole lump. And in Jesus, we are fully accepted. Condemnation, shame, fully covered. We're a new lump. Not a lump with new chances, a new lump. Because the leaven has been purged. Third plant guide. What does the Bible tell us about a bird tree? Does a bird tree show up in the Bible anywhere? It does. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about his kingdom. The evil Babylonian empire is signified as a tree. A giant tree. And he's disturbed by the dream, and Daniel says, You had a dream about a giant tree, and you are that tree, and your kingdom is that tree. You became strong. The height reached to the heavens. It could be seen by all the earth. The leaves were lovely, and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and those branches had the birds of the heavens, and were made their home. That tree is you, O king. And the whole message of Daniel is that there are kingdoms of the world, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of Babylon, the evil Babylon kingdom, contrasted with God's kingdom. And because Nebuchadnezzar lives for himself, that tree and bird, a watcher shows up in Daniel and chops down the tree because it's an opposition to God's kingdom. So it's helpful when you see a bird tree, it's based on the, the plant guide from Daniel, it's the evil Babylonian empire, this is not good news. Fourth plant guide. Three measures of fine meal. This is such a great passage. Genesis chapter 18. If you haven't read it, read it this week. It begins by saying in verse 1 that God appeared to Abraham. Next verse, he appeared as three people. Well, which is it? God appeared, in the whole passage says, God spoke, God spoke, God spoke. But it looks like three people, three people, three people. Abraham doesn't know it's God, initially. He just knows three guests have come home. Three guests have come to his house. People he doesn't know. When the three guests arrive, how will he handle the three guests? Will he shun them? Will he welcome them? Will he give them hospitality? He is so excited to have three guests come to visit with him. He runs home, knocks on the door, and maybe you've gotten this phone call from your husband or wife. And it goes like this. Hey, honey, uh, got some friends I'd like to have come over um, to visit. When do you think we could get together with uh, the so-and-sos? Well, you know, we got some time in the calendar, uh, maybe next month. Christmas is going to be busy, maybe in January. And your husband or wife says, no, 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 I mean, they're coming over now. Do you want them to come over at five or six? <laughs> what? That's what he's done. Abraham has just said, three guests are coming home, throw a big meal. And not just a big meal, notice. Notice a few things about the passage. One. Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal. So he tells his wife to make three measures of fine meal. How much did he just request? Now, if you remember from our book of Leviticus, fine meal was the finest of flour fit only for a king. Abraham is incredibly wealthy, even to have access to what we're about to describe. This was like the the wealthiest, the best, the best, the best of what you had was the fine meal. Three measures of fine meal was about 60 pounds of flour. 60 pounds he's asked her to make for this meal for these three guests he doesn't know. That's the equivalent. Get out your 100-quart mixer. Mix that thing around. And this is 412 top and bottom peanut butter and jelly sandwiches she's making. Jesus references this for a reason. Why? A couple reasons. One, this is radically generous generosity. This is a level of charity and generosity to guests That is unheard of. Three measures of fine flour. And they don't even know it's God yet. And notice all the hints in this passage. Notice it says that Abraham, this Middle Eastern man, ran. Where else do you see in the Bible a Middle Eastern man running to a guest? Jesus has a parable about that, doesn't he? And God ran, the Father ran to the Son. And when Abraham runs to Sarah, you make the bread, he then runs and says, could you grab me a herd, take a tender good calf, let's give it to the young man. Oh, we have a father running to guests to be generous to them, getting his best cow, his best calf to provide for them. Huh. And what they will discover when they are incredibly generous to these guests is by the time the story is over they find out these weren't guests all along. They've been generous to God who pulls them aside and says, Hey, you guys feel like you're old and decrepit and your life has no purpose anymore? Yeah, God told us we're going to have a son. I'm 100 now and she's 99. She ain't looking real good. (laughs) Neither am I. And God speaks now through these guests they were incredibly generous to and say, you're going to have a son by this time next year and his name is Laughter. (laughs) Sarah laughs, and they name their son Isaac, Laughter. It is in the middle of their radical generosity of three measures of fine flour to guess that they end up being generous to God, and through that, they find incredible joy of generosity, and they get connected to God's promise and find joy in their life. And they find that they're the only couple going to Walmart to get to pens and undergarments at the same time. <laughs> That's in the original Hebrew So, now, in the plant guide, we have these four different plants. Now, with that in mind, let's then apply that to the parable. Let's go back to these four short verses and see what this parable might be saying. First, the context. Before you read a verse, make sure you know what happened beforehand. So, remember, last week we learned about... For four chapters, Jesus has been slaughtering the religious leaders. You're wrong, wrong, wrong. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wrong, wrong. God's kingdom here, your kingdom here. You think you're representing the kingdom, you're not really. You've destroyed the kingdom, you've condemned the kingdom. Wrong, 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 wrong. This is the kingdom. So he's been saying that for four chapters. The theme of Luke has been God's kingdom is not the religious kingdom. You contaminated it. But right before these two parables, we heard about a woman who was bent over and could not straighten herself. And God had to make her straight. And how did the religious community react to this? They again can't even recognize God's kingdom because they've so contaminated it with their religiosity and their rules and regulations and their self-centeredness. So much so, he says, You hypocrite! Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound. Think of it! For 18 years she's been bound. Shouldn't she, like your donkey or ox, be loosed on the bond from Sabbath? And we said these things. His adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitudes rejoiced for all the glorious things that were being done by the kingdom. So I believe... You don't have to take this position, but I believe the context suggests, based on the last four chapters and based on his reference of the religious leaders being hypocrites, Satan binding this woman and using the religious leaders to destroy, and that he describes them as adversaries, I think that context then brings us into these two parables about the kingdom, where he's going to show us two parables about how God's kingdom has been distorted by the religious leaders, which then brings us to parable number one. Parable number one. What is it the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed. Audience, plant guide, very, very small, invasive weed. Who is the man? Based on the context, I'd say the man is Satan, religious leaders, people who distort the kingdom of God. And later on, Jesus tells another story, another parable, in one of the other Gospels, about a man who sows weeds in the garden. So it's also parallel to another parable. So this man, who I take to be Satan... Plants a little bitty seed in the garden and it begins to grow. Boom, 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 boom. It grows and grows and grows and grows. And it takes over the garden. It became a large tree. Oh, what's the plant guide say? Evil Babylonian Empire. Oh, something's distorting God's work in the garden. And that tree has birds in it. Now, if you've ever had a garden, do you plant a garden under a tree? No. Too much shade. The tree itself produces toxins and don't let things grow under a tree. Having a tree in the middle of your garden, not good news. Now, if you've had a strawberry plant or a tomato plant, well, how do you feel about birds? Is it good to have birds in your garden? No, they're eating your vegetation, they're eating the fruit. So again, I take everything about the metaphor and everything about the parallel to Daniel as bad news. That Satan wants to destroy God's work in your life by planting a tree. A religious tree, a pride tree, it's all about me tree, which, would, which Nebuchadnezzar's tree was all about. That God wants you to live your life for his kingdom, but instead it becomes all about you. And in becoming all about you, it eats away at all the good fruit God wanted to produce in your life. There's weeds in their garden, you might say. And the birds of the air nested. And if you remember the other parable Jesus tells about sowing of the seed, what is it that takes the seed and runs away with it? The bird representing Satan, taking it away from us. So with all that in mind, I think Jesus is saying, God's garden, a good garden of great kingdom work, has been contaminated. And what have you allowed? It might have been a small little thing you let Satan put into your life. A lie, a pattern, a habit. And it has distorted God's work in your life. And what's worse, you don't even recognize it. You're proud of your tree. Look at that tree. i got a pretty life, and i got a, well, a great reputation. i got wonderful things. I've got Bible verses memorized. And, but all of it has just killed the real fruit of the garden. Now, I said this was a passage to apply to us individually. What tree might be contaminating God's garden in your life? But it's also a passage for us as a church. Why are we taking 35 minutes to study four books of the Bible, or four verses of the Bible? Because we are passionate about pursuing a weedless garden. Doesn't mean my interpretation is correct, but we want to dig deeply into a passage to say, what does this really mean? And one of our priorities as a church is relentlessly pursuing and committed to preaching a weedless garden. What does it mean to know what this passage means? And so often you go to church, and I hear this every week, people say, why is it that most churches aren't teaching the Bible anymore? Or the Bible's kind of being read, but I get this sort of light and fluffy version. Kind of like I started, right? Good passage, little influence goes a long way, go and do good things. That's not a bad message or application. It's just kind of light. And then you are sort of dry and dusty. Jesus said, what shall I liken unto you, the kingdom of God? It is like a man who took a mustard seed and placed it in a garden. <laughs> so even in preaching in churches today, you get light and fluffy or dry and dusty, not deep and compelling. What does this mean? And not only what does it mean, wow, that seems true. You've given me reasons why that. Ble- and what does it mean to me? How do I apply it? And one of the biggest weeds in the garden is you don't hear the Bible taught. And if it is taught, you either get legalism, stuff I need to do, lots of stuff I need to do, guilt, condemnation, I can't do it all, I try, try, try to mourn out. Or you get liciousness. God doesn't care. <laughs> all that old stuff in there, that doesn't apply anymore. So you either get all truth and legalism, or you get all grace and uh, antinomianism. There's a word for the day. But you don't get the gospel, which is what does it mean that we are free in Christ? We're a new lump. And because we're a new lump in Christ, we want to apply the law. Because we don't have to. It's been applied on behalf. We want to please the one whom it is pleasing. That's why we're relentlessly pursuing best understanding of the passages. And not only teaching us the passage, deep thoughts from Chad, how did we get it? How do you use context? How do you use cross-references? How do you look for phrases so that we can all become students of the word? So much so that I'll give you a little peek behind the curtain. So one of the things we do as a church, and I take my role very seriously, and this then works with our, our, our elementary school department and our high school department, is we want to make sure if you come here at Horizon for 10 years, you are getting a deep biblical education. So much so that I've been tracking for the last 15 years what passage we've taught and not taught. So every time we do a new Christmas Eve message, every time we do an Easter message, every time we do an explorer service or equipping service, we look at a 10-year scope and sequence to see what passage we have not yet taught. So I'll give you an example. So I've divided the Old Testament into four sections. And divided those into 16 to 17 pieces to make sure over a 10-year period of time, everyone in the church is being taught through the entire Bible. Then we do that with the New Testament. It has four sections this being the Acts through Revelation section, to make sure over a 10-year period of time you're getting taught the entire counsel of God. And then without giving you my whole boring Excel, I turn it into one slide. Here's just one example of how I track just the first 18. So in Genesis, God Creates the World, we did a series called Fast Track Bible in 2012 at the Exploring Service. These are all the Exploring Service. This is the Equipping. We did a verse-by-verse study of Genesis chapter 1-11 through 11 in 2008. Many of you were here where I covered everything, first 1 through chapter 11. We picked it back up in twenty thirteen, we covered the life of Abraham uh, eight through eleven, and then we did a series, if you were with us a few years ago in two thousand fourteen, called The Code of Many Colors, we covered Joseph's life. You'll see there's a hole here. We're going to come back and hit Jacob and Esau. I have, however, covered Jacob and Esau at the exploring service to a series called Get a Clue that I did last year. And so what we do is both our equipping and exploring services, we want there to be challenging Bible teaching, because we believe the Bible and God's Holy Spirit transforms people when it's well taught. And so we're tracking with that, and we are teaching that. We want to make sure over a 10-year period of time, why is it you feel I'm always learning new things? And that's why. Because the Bible's alive. In fact, my daughter, at her wedding uh, a few weeks ago, one of the stories that her my, my son-in-law, Brandon, had the, the officiant tell was when he first met Sierra. It's so funny. So I'm sitting there, I listen to this story, and, and the officiant says, yeah, so Brandon tells me that when he first met Sierra, she was um, chatty, chatty. He's sitting next to her in chapel, and as he's sitting next to her in chapel, he realized there might be a little more to her, because the guy starts preaching, and my daughter just starts taking incredible notes, and Brandon's like, it doesn't seem like this message is that good, <laughs> but she's taking notes, and scribbling, and writing, and cross-referencing, so they get done, he's now intrigued, he says, hey, can I see your notes, like, what are you writing down, or, like, what did you get out of that? And C.R. turns and says, almost everything that man said was totally and completely wrong. And here are all the cross-references I have to back up my position. <laughs> Whew! Glad she's not taking notes on my message. And he said, here's a bold woman who has confidence in the scriptures and knows her stuff. And I told her when she went to a Bible college, she was going to find that where she couldn't find any Christians who were trying to understand the Bible, maybe in in public school now she's going to have christians who's distorted into this moralism and this rule keeping method that wasn't the gospel i love that story and i love the fact that last may she decided to become our children's pastor so now we have somebody who is equally as passionate about bible teaching and making sure we're taking our students through the bible in our children's ministry because the gospel and the biblical content is not being taught and that's what makes what we do so important In fact, I heard a story about uh, Jeff Foxworth. You know, if you know, he's a real committed uh, follower of Jesus. And he works in a downtown area, kind of like our work in City Gospel in Atlanta. And he was trying to lead a Bible study with these guys who, some were drug addicts and some were homeless. And he said, guys, you need to know this book can change your life. He opened the Bible and said, this Bible is alive. He said, look, I read through the Bible every year with a different color highlighter. I used the yellow four years ago. Look at this one page in my Bible. Yellow, 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 yellow. The next year, I read through it with blue. Same page, different things, blue. The next page, green, different things, green. The Holy Spirit speaks to you through this book. It transforms you and it changes you. One guy said, can I tell you my story? I said, sure. So my dad committed suicide and my brother committed suicide and my mom committed suicide and I just became a wreck. That's how I became homeless. One of the last things I had for my mom besides inheritance was a backpack with all my possessions and in that was a Bible and a poem from my mom. I took that backpack wherever I go. I took all the money and I partied, party, party, hotel to hotel, house to house. And I lost that backpack along the way. Didn't really care about the Bible, didn't have much faith, but I lost that last contact I had with my mom. It's been a year and a half since I lost the backpack. Money ran out, the girls were gone, parties were over. Somebody gave me a chance to get a job. I did, a, I guess, a little bit of a good job. He said, all right, you did such a good job, I want you to take another guy and i want you to go about an hour and a half west of atlanta and i want you to clean out a house for me so i go out there with this guy was supervising he cleaned up the first top floor i cleaned up the bottom floor threw everything in the dumpster i went up to check on his work in general it looked pretty good except this big old pile of stuff i'm like why didn't you deal with that stuff he said well, i thought we might be able to sell that some of it looked valuable a year and a half since he lost his backpack 100 miles away from atlanta He's reaching this big old pile, and underneath the stuff, he finds his backpack, opens it up, his Bible's in it, and the letter from his mom falls out. And he said that day in Bible study with Jeff Foxworthy, I figure if God's working this hard to get my attention with the Bible, I better spend some time in it. We are so committed to the Bible because of that. Now, let's have those dramatic stories, but when you get into the Bible, the Holy Spirit begins to pull away the roots of the things that are distorting it. And begin to bring life. And to bring life into it. Alright. God's garden has been contaminated. But then he says, let me tell you another story. About how God's dough has been contaminated. Once again he said, what shall I like in the kingdom of God? It's like leaven. Oh, that's bad. Leaven, sin was taken by a woman, which almost always in the Old Testament is Jezebel. The Jezebel's the woman, the evil woman. She's the one you know, doing bad things. That's so not always good news. And she hid love and sin into what was supposed to be, God's kingdom was supposed to be, about three measures of fine meal. Incredible, radical generosity to others. To guests you don't even know. To people who aren't going to give you anything. the people don't even recognize. That the kingdom of God was about being lavishly generous with your money lavishly generous with your patience lavishly generous with your with your love lavishly generous with your forgiveness that's the kingdom of God but you put a little bit of well I shouldn't have to put up with it. a little bit of leaven of you know what I think you've done enough you know at least you're doing more than others and it will leaven the entire loaf and pretty soon you're not living out the kingdom of God you're not living lavishly generous in your marriage lavishly generous in your finances lavishly generous in your calendar there was a recent book called "The Paradox of Generosity." They did a 20 2,000-person study over 30 years, I think, one of the largest studies of generosity, and they found that people who, who volunteered, were generous for their time, six hours a month were very happy compared to unhappy or depressed, those who volunteered only 0.6 hours a month. Those who gave away 10 percent of their income said that 42 percent of the time, they rarely to never face depression compared to the norm in the culture, was 32%. Now, does that mean if you give 10% of your income away, you're not going to be depressed? Of course not. But what it does mean is that being generous with your money, being generous with your time, and then the study went on to say, the people who found themselves to be generous in their marriages, generous in their relationships, found themselves to be happier as well. Because you're tapped into the kingdom of God. You're tapped into that three measures of fine flour. But it is so quick and so easy to have the 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 leaven deposited in there that you stop, you know a lot of Bible, but you stop living a generous life. And Jesus says what happens is the kingdom of God gets distorted by leaven. And instead of living like a new lump and saying, God's been so generous to me, how can I be generous to others? And when you run out of patience with your spouse, for example... What do you need? You need to look at God, not try harder. You need to look at God and say, how patient has God been to me? How generous has God been with his patience to me? How generous has God been to his forgiveness with me? And when you've partaken of God's generosity, you're like, oh. You can then go and give three measures of fine meal to your spouse. Jesus will even say, to your enemy. How are you going to love your enemy? Except to see that you were an enemy and how generous was God to give himself for you. That's the gospel. And it is powerful. Try harder to be a good Christian is not. That's leaven. That's moralism that just distorts the loaf. And that's why Jesus says the kingdom of God, the power of God, is to recognize that I want you to live generous lives of three measures of meal, which is why we as a church are also, our second priority is to relentlessly commit to pursuing three measures. What does it mean to become increasingly generous in our life? increasingly others-centered in our life to make sure our calendars and our checkbooks represent the kingdom of God, not the big tree of the evil Babylonian empire. What does it look like to have that manifest itself in our life, to be generous here, near, and far? And we serve an incredibly generous congregation. Last week we talked about the giving tree. And this year, we've totally changed the giving tree. We've been doing it for 15 years. But this year, the giving tree is all about all the things we do the rest of the year round. So we're involved in interparish ministries year round. The giving tree now focuses on the things we've been doing even more so. All year round, we go down to City Gospel Mission. The giving tree now has aspects that partner with the things we're already doing year round with City Gospel Mission. The work we're doing with Happy Church, the giving tree gives you a chance to give. To all the things we do year-round, and especially this holiday season for Happy Church. And did you know last week, between the four services, we ran out of all the opportunities for the inter-parish ministries and the gospel mission? I think there's a few left in gospel mission. So we actually had to go back and say, wow, our, our people are so generous and so want to be three measures of fine meal to give to God's work. That we actually had to go and, and get more opportunities to give this week, so there are more chances. There have been gifts and presents coming in for families who would never be able to afford it all week long. It's been an amazing place of generosity. Because we want to chase down the full kingdom of God here at our church. And I had a powerful, very humbling moment last week. I got done with the 850 service. I was getting prepared to head into the 10. And somebody said, hey, could somebody, somebody wants to talk to you in the hearth room. So I went to the hearth room and I met a woman that I knew. I knew her because I'd put a phone call into her this year when she lost her husband. As a pastoral staff, we we're often on the receiving end of being in the darkest of places with people, talking with her daughters about losing their dad. I said, what, what's going on? She had an envelope in her hand. She had, Since the funeral, we collected a lot of money for the funeral and it, it's a lot of money for me And I wasn't sure what God was directing me to do with it. The last couple weeks, you've talked about trying to raise $750,000 to create video services, to increase teaching services, and to create new opportunities for people to learn the Bible. And as I think about my husband's legacy, this is not going to get you very far to that number, but this is a lot of money to me. And I feel like God's directing me to give this to that project. She hands me this envelope, and I am so humbled. I've had a lot of checks where a lot of people have given some sacred gifts over the years to God's work here at Horizon. Some of those have been three-figure gifts that were incredibly generous. Some have been four-figure gifts that were incredibly generous. I've had some in my hand, five-figure, six-figure, one, even seven-figure check to God's work here at Horizon. Every, every one of those gift size has been a representation of people's sacred commitment to God and his work here in the scriptures. And this one weighed just as much as that seven-figure gift. I felt like the Holy Spirit said, tell her a story. Hadn't thought about this story in years. I said, can I tell you a story? She said, sure. I said, David was once behind enemy lines. Saul had him surrounded. And he turned to his men, his mighty men, his mercenaries, his good friends. He says, guys, I could sure use a drink of water from Bethlehem in the spring I used to drink at. Just kind of musing out loud, like his favorite restaurant. And his men that night so loved this man who'd given so much, sacrificed so much for him, they actually snuck behind enemy lines, made their way through the camp of Saul, got back to that spring in Bethlehem, filled up their flask, snuck their way back at great parallel and risk to their own lives. They made their way back to David. They woke him up. I don't know if it was a day later. I can't remember how much time it took. And David's like, what's going on? And the, his men surround him and say, We love you. We have seen you sacrifice for us. Love us. Protect us. Look after us. We went and got you that drink from Bethlehem. And they hand him the flask. And he's so overwhelmed by their generosity. He's so overwhelmed by the sacredness of their bond as men. He says, Guys, I can't drink this, it's too sacred. Instead, he gathered the men around and he did what was called a drink offering. He poured that sacred water out that he'd been craving for so long. He pours it on the ground as a drink offering to say, this is holy water that represents our love for each other. And I said to that woman last week, I said, this is a sacred offering and I'm humbled that you would offer it, that we would use that to impact generations and knowing and understanding the Bible and creating new mechanisms for new people to grow. This is so humbling. So, I not know what God is calling you in your three measures. It might be here at Horizon to what we're doing in our video project. It might be something with the, the mission trips that we go on each year that maybe you've been hearing about and haven't gone on yet. Maybe it's volunteering with your time here. Maybe it has nothing to do with Horizon. Maybe God's calling you to be generous. I had somebody cut to me last night and talked to an incredible story of eight years ago, how God had directed him to, to give to someone in our community that's transformed his life. But ask God the question, what does it look like for me to tap into the three measures, kingdom priority that you've given to me? Yeah, that's really what this whole passage has been about. God's garden and God's dough have been contaminated. So how do we as individuals and we as a church relentlessly pursue a weedless garden and three measures of fine flour? How do we create an environment for that? Because when you do, you get to be like Abraham and Sarah. Who? Who? Not only were they just generous to guess, but they found it by being generous to guess, they were generous to God. Which is why Jesus will show up later and say, what you've done in the least of these, you've done unto me. Because Abraham and Sarah had really done it. And when you do it, when you're generous to guess, you don't yet know, you end up tapping into the heart of God, the heart of a father who runs to the prodigal, who slaughters the fatted calf. And you begin to not become churchy people involved in churchy things, but you begin to focus on other people and other things. And God grows your heart. So much so, that the book of Hebrews will reference this passage about Sarah and Abraham and say, be careful when you're being generous. God has secret spies everywhere to bless you. Here's how Hebrews says it. You might be entertaining angels, messengers from God, unaware. That when you get to heaven, there might be an incredible legacy where people you didn't know were impacted by your giving of time and money, without a doubt. But that's not going to be the best part. The best part is when you thought you were helping an orphan, when you thought you were helping a single mom, when you thought you were giving to a video project, when you thought you were giving to, you know, teach children's Sunday school class, when you you thought you were running a a PowerPoint presentation, Jesus is going to say what you did unto all those things. It was good for them. But it's really how you showed me how much you love me. In the same way, 60 pounds of fine flour were poured upon three men next to a tree. The ultimate 60 pounds were laid on an ultimate tree when God himself died for us to show his generosity to us. And that was the ultimate example of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredibly short but challenging passage. May we be people who dig the scriptures, dig in and understand what you have for us, and live incredibly selfless, generous lives to the guests before us. And all that, Father, manifest yourself. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here today.